listening to Disrupt Development Storycast on Young Voices for Development in collaboration with Rappout University. In this series, we amplify the voices of young professionals who are following the Advanced Master for International Development at Rappout University. Welcome, dear listeners, to our little storycast of the Disrupt Development. Uh, my name is Felix Kussmann, and I'm sitting here with uh, Matteo Tarasco. We are both uh, graduates in development economics and are following at the moment the AMIT, that is the Advanced Master for International Development Program. And we had a lecture last week, and it was about the role that private sector could play in developing countries low-income countries to be precise. And uh, yeah, Matteo, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that lecture was about? Yeah, thank you, Felix. Indeed, it was a very interesting lecture from my point of view. Um, I just started saying that, um, to be honest, I don't know what about you, but I expect it to be about the role of corporate social responsibility or uh, social enterprises. And instead, it was, I believe, more controversial of it because it talked about business as usual and a role in low-income countries. But you know, we, even, yeah, whereas I even think like it almost went further than business as usual because he was really bringing forward some points where I was just like surprised, like okay, wow, that totally goes against my intuitions that I would have um, as an economist. Exactly, exactly. No, it had like a little twist that went beyond just business as usual. So, okay, the start of the lecture was about a, a critique over the um, main practices when it comes to development aid. So one of the main practices in development aid is to deliver uh, financial aid to lower income countries. What happens though with this practice? First of all, it creates a dependence. And secondly, um, most countries uh, country they receive money in the end actually have to give back uh, um, to to the higher income countries more money that actually they received in development aid for example a study in 2017 as it was showed in our lecture showed that in africa uh, as a whole as a continent we're giving 162 billion dollars in development aid but on the same year, year 203 billion dollars went outside the continent. This is for different reasons. It can be because the countries have a public debt with the same countries that actually are giving the development aid, or it could be for illicit flow, or it could be, for example, because uh, there are foreign private companies that actually have their headquarters in higher income countries, but they do their activities in Africa or in Asia or in Latin America. And at the end of the day, all the wealth that is created in those countries goes and moves outside and back into the rich world. Basically, more money leaves the continent than is actually invested. Exactly. So this was uh, one of the main points of uh, our lecturer, a professor from Nigeria. So the, the twist here and uh, what uh, the, the, the new insight was how actually local private companies can benefit 
lower income countries. So instead of having foreign companies, what about the private companies that are in the country? And so we are like a several uh, case studies, such as a company in Nigeria called uh, Dangote Cement. Uh, they produce cement. And until a few years ago, Nigeria was an import cement country. And through this company, through this local company, not only it became independent on the production and consumption of cement, but even became an export cement country, uh, Nigeria. How did you do that? Yeah, exactly. And here is where the controversy starts, because one of the main uh, ways that this uh, uh, approach works is through a great cooperation between the government and the private company. So this has several benefits as shown in the, uh, in the lecture. And indeed, you know, as I've just said, so Nigeria, for example, moved and became and create like a national value and became independent on, uh, on that sector. On the other side, this open up a huge range of issues such as um, chronic capitalism, like favoritism or corruption or nepotism. So, Let's say that in the end, uh, it's not that the solution uh, outlined was uh, described as the best one, but the main point here was that economic development in lower income countries will not come from um, uh, foreign multinationals or from uh, development aid, but will come from the inside. Now, I would like indeed, Felix, to hear a bit your first thoughts on this, because indeed there is quite a lot to talk about, I believe. Yeah, if I understand correctly, in the end, um, what it was really about, there was like one strong uh, industry leader in the sense that had very strong ties to the government, which then managed to create a monopoly, basically, about the whole cement industry, and uh, which then helped him through his uh, political influence to really invest in uh, big infrastructure projects, invest in big uh, industry projects, and then indeed build up the industry which then led to this point of like, yeah, that more value was created inside of the country than it was going out. And instead of like importing, you could now export products. So mm -hmm. the end was a good one. But the question is also, does the end uh, justify the means? Hmm. Because if you look at it from the point of view that, okay, we then have virtually a monopoly about a certain industry with very strong tie to the government, as a yeah, as an economist say, I would say that a monopoly is never really good because on the one hand it can create like very high prices and tendency has a tendency to undersupply uh, products that, that 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 could be provided otherwise, and also the whole situation regarding wage, wages and human rights is usually very severe in this kind of situations because the negotiation powers of all other players besides the monopolists in this sense, this uh, cement company. Um, will probably be rather low yeah. together with the yeah, political influence that they already have with the strong ties to the government. And in this sense, the whole argument reminded me a little bit of this old argument of uh, yeah, trickle-down economics, which is kind mm -hmm. of this idea yeah, exactly. of, um, okay, let's give the money to, to, the, to the big uh, private owners, to the, to the capitalists, um, centralize basically wealth, And then from that, we will have development. But we can see that overall, especially if we also look at cases like uh, the resource curse, for example, that we have some, some countries that actually have 
as such, a lot of uh, well worthy and valuable resources that they basically, in the end, end up being economies which are like, yeah, rather underperforming and that the wealth that is created is actually not really going to the rest um, of the society. So in this sense, I'm also wondering, does this trickle-down approach, this monopolist focus actually really help or isn't it more like a repetition of, yeah, what otherwise also happens, that you have one big company that comes in, it could be foreign, it could be local, extracts a lot of value and then puts it, exports it either um, abroad or, which is also a big part in the discussion about outflows from Africa, puts it in the profits into tax havens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's illicit tax flows that you mentioned before. Because when you also look at the numbers, the illicit tax flow outflows from Africa are almost twice as high as the profit extracted from Africa. So it is a huge, huge problem. And there I really wonder, yeah, is this approach really a thing that could help? Yeah, and it did for me here. The question is a bit, okay, is there really a difference between like a white rich man and a black rich man? Yeah, if you want to polarize it, then that's probably a question that you could ask. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, no, there, there might be differences, but the point here is that it's not taken for given that if you give money to a private company, always to a monopoly, that it's either from a black man, from a, a white man, in the end, this really benefits the community. So, okay, now it gets a bit uh, um, tricky for me, Felix, because, I mean, now the both of us are uh, young, white, uh, healthy men, uh, middle class. So, I mean, we attract towards us basically all the uh, social categories of privilege. And, um, and of course, this influences us. But besides our certainly biased perspective, no, so it gets a bit problematic that we discuss among us what are the best development strategies for development for um, lower income countries. Well, let's hope that we can find some kind of an objective perspective on this whole discussion. Exactly. I mean, the point is that nonetheless, besides our biased perspective, here the point remains that there are no objective data taken into consideration besides national value creation. So what about the wealth redistribution? What about uh, workers' conditions or uh, child labor or human rights? Uh, the impact uh, on the environment uh, of the community? I mean, all of these aspects are not taken for given if you just give uh, the power to the private sector, either if it's a foreign company or a local company. So this is where I see like a, a big flow on, uh, on this way of thinking, which is connected to what you talked about, the trickle-down economics. Mm -hmm. So do you have anything to, 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 to tackle this issue? <laughs> well, yes, indeed. Um, I believe that here is exactly where actually the development sector can play a role, which well, I, I was a bit surprised that uh, during the lecture it was basically uh, kind of neglected. It was really constantly being uh, these two actors on the stage, the public sector, the government, and the private sector, although local. Uh, and we just keep the discussion with do these two actors in mind and nothing else, 
Well, what happens? One could also already, one could even ask ourselves, okay, what is our job then as uh, development professionals left to do in this whole situation? Yes, it is. But okay, no, that's more like a private, uh, uh, personal interest. We might say, well, yeah, okay, we should not exist, which could happen. But I argue that actually we do have a role because if these two actors are left alone, then they become powerful. And if they even cooperate, then there is corruption and there is nobody to keep them accountable. So here is where the development sector can play a role. So they, the NGOs, civil society organizations, or private citizens, what they can do is indeed lobby these two players. So for example, they can lobby or advocate at the government to issue policies that enable a favorable environment for the private sector to uh, rise and to protect the uh, workers' rights and the environment and uh, uh, to redistribute the wealth that is being created in the country. On the other side, they also can lobby the private sectors, the company, to make them accountable and uh, transparent on their policies, on uh, how they carry on their business. So I see that the development sector, the NGOs, have a role. If I may add another thing, on, uh, on this point um, is that I also understand the criticism though uh, that I remember the lecturer gave on our sector. I say our sector instead, and so the development sector. Because it's true, I mean, um, often uh, in development aid, you create dependence. But if you instead use other strategies to create empowerment, like the ones that I just list, uh, listed, so that can actually be a great tool. And then we also have the international development agencies, like the big ones, like the World Bank, for example. And of course, that becomes very tricky. Of course, there you have a lot of criticism because the World Bank, for example, is uh, controlled by other governments, by other nation states. For example, the United States have a big influence on the decision-making of the World Bank. And moreover, when you ask for financial aid to the World Bank, you have to adhere to certain conditions. These conditions are usually very strict and on a neoliberal, um, with a neoliberal approach. What does that mean? It means that usually you have to liberalize your economy. Therefore, you, can, you have to host private companies and that comes from abroad, so foreign private companies. And then we go actually to the beginning of the problem, that then all the money, all the wealth created in the nation then goes abroad. So I see that also the development sector has criticisms. Yeah. But if you think about more the local uh, NGOs or the small NGOs, that's a different story. Yeah, I remember that the professor also tried to make this point that he said, okay, everybody has their own interests and their own agenda. So even if you talk about this international NGOs, which say that uh, they want to help and have a mission, they indeed represent somebody else often and whose interests they, they, they're supposed to implement. But now that you just mentioned international trade policy and international organizations quickly, that made me think of one aspect that uh, maybe could also, if we say like, okay, we want to foster local value creation, could really help or needs to be alleviated on it in order to make that possible which is this kind of constellation that we basically say to 
low-income countries through institutions like the um, IMF or World Bank. Okay, you have to liberalize, uh -huh. you have to deregulate your companies, while at the same time, economies of the North, uh, North America or the EU basically still very much subsidize their own economies while putting harsh tariffs on anything that comes outside of the of these 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 economic um, communities on any kind of processed goods one example here is for example coffee or cacao which as long you try to import it to the eu unprocessed you barely uh, pay any tariffs but as soon as you start roasting or um, process them in any kind of way uh, huge amounts of um, tariffs are then imposed on these uh, imports of of of, uh, of yeah cacao products. So I think there a role of NGOs could be played in the sense that yeah trying to change policies that actually make it easier and more profitable and more worth their time and effort to actually process already uh, products and raw materials in low income countries that more value can indeed be generated there, also captured there. And then um, the goods could be, yeah, exported to to the countries where they're actually uh, consumed. I think it's very interesting that you mentioned this because, I mean, we, the both of us, work in Rainforest Alliance. So now our organization is a big international NGO that certify products such as, uh, yeah, cocoa, coffee, uh, tea, bananas, and so on, um, accordingly to certain social and environmental uh, criteria. So, and I see that now, so we, we do support uh, the private sector in uh, lower income countries. So that's a bit the role of the NGO, as we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, also here there is a criticism, right? Because indeed we do support a specific sector of the economy, the, the primary sector, the agricultural sector. So, for example, now with like the uh, uh, we we certify the farmers of let's say uh, coffee, but then the coffee itself is roasted and processed. The industry is in higher income countries, and then is either sold in the same countries or sold back in the lower income country. And here, so uh, there is also like a choice of which sector of the economy you want to promote. Mm -hmm. Is it the agricultural sector? The industry sector, the service sector. So this part is um, controversial. And yeah, I mean, I believe that actually even our sector can go even beyond this role because I perceive that still we continue to be in this neoliberal perspective, you know, mm -hmm. we could step even farther. How would that look like then? Yeah. Um, I don't know whether uh, you heard about the concept of social and solidarity economy. Social solidarity economics. Well, there's social in it, there's solidarity in it, there's economics in it. Um, that can tell <laughs> something, but yeah, what is it exactly? Exactly. Maybe most, uh, many people uh, who are listening to us are new to this concept. So, well, the social and solidarity economy is uh, an umbrella term that encompasses all those um, enterprises and organizations that support economic activities which have not only a profit goal but also social and environmental goals. For example, uh, these include cooperatives 
in particular workers cooperatives where mm. this relationship between owners and workers doesn't exist anymore so this power relation is completely uh, eliminated or uh, community owned enterprises so where naturally there is more attention to the local welfare um or uh, uh, ethical banks or self help groups so all these organizations that support um different kind of economy so you may imagine uh, in this way if we will have a social solidarity economy system and if we will promote that we will have the benefit of having local private companies instead of foreign ones of having empowerment of having independence while at the same time having an inclusive and a, a wealth uh, an inclusive economic system with wealth redistribution and the role of the ngos in this case mm-hmm. instead of being the one that we previously um listed then can be instead to promote an environment for the social and solidarity economy so there will be like a step further to all this discussion very interesting Yeah, I think it's actually a very nice note, positive note to end this uh, storycast that we produced for you, our dear listeners. And um, yeah, so today we talked about what uh, role private sector can play in development based on our lecture that we had last week with the controversial point that basically you could use monopolies and uh, very strong individuals in certain uh, industries to foster that to in the end yeah hopefully um foster local value creation but we still had some issues with that so we think actually that indeed local value creation is a key thing in development but also there are ways to make it more inclusive and also have a way to involve civil society local stakeholders and ngos to create indeed local value creations that is inclusive to everybody and also yeah adheres to some kind of standards of sustainability and human rights. So that was our episode for you. We hope you enjoyed it and uh, that you will enjoy the rest of the show as well. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Goodbye everyone. Do you also have a story to share or are you interested in more content from Disrupt Development? Subscribe to our podcast and visit disruptdevelopment.org.